Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. It's time for part two of our interview with Brad Schiller. As a reminder, Brad is a lighting designer, lighting programmer, media designer, media programmer, with over 25 years of experience. He's done the Academy Awards, the Olympic Games, both the opening and closing ceremonies, Crystal Method, Metallica, Smashing Pumpkins, and innumerable corporate events. He also wrote the book on what it is we do, the Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook, and he writes a monthly column for PLSN called Feeding the Machines. When our last episode wound down, Brad had just talked about his work with Crystal Method. Now, here's part two of our interview with Brad. Uh, Brad, before we look at any other projects, I'd like to ask you this question about, you know, you mentioned EDM and sort of festival culture. And I wonder if it's changing our side of the business. And this, and this might be completely off base. I, I, but, uh, you know, uh, when I had Mike Baldessari on the show, he mentioned that band production managers don't really want LDs anymore. They want programmers who can come in and, like, busk on the festival rig, and then that's sort of it. But so many people were inspired by the work that guys like you did and guys like Patrick Woodroff and Jules Fisher and, and Beverly Emmons, you know, doing these sort of like old school concert tours. And, you know, and then with the rise of EDM, it's sort of like well, what happens when nobody has these sort of iconic lighting designs anymore and it's just sort of busking through the festival? Yeah, we, we, there's certainly a lot of that. I mean, that's gone on for a long time. You know, I, I did a lot of shows where that's what I did. I was hired for festivals to take over a stage and be the programmer, busker, designer, all in one. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily new. I think what's new is just the recognition it's getting. You know, when I was doing that, that was more out of what was almost like the rave days, if you will. You know, I used to do the Ultra Music Festival, which is now a huge, huge thing. Mm -hmm. But I used to do that uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, and, and Steve Lieberman was there and Patrick Dearson and myself and Scott Riley, a bunch of us, and we all were would just be assigned a stage and you would go there and do everything on that stage, programming and design-wise. And that still happens today. I think what happens, though, is time has been reduced for programming and the rigs have gotten much bigger and much more complex. And then people expect more because they see these videos of shows that maybe had been pre-programmed for weeks on, on a, a visualizer, or they see you know the, the big EDC shows and things like that, and they, that's what they expect out of their festival and out of their festival programmer, but they only give them one night to program. And they, that's where I think we're falling down in, as an industry, is that that's where it falls into the flash and trash, and, and not so much the artistic ability that you've seen out of in the past out of these shows. So it's a misunderstanding on, this, on the part of the guys who are running these things. Correct, yeah, on the, on the management. And sort of because they weren't around when these concepts were, were started, they didn't see how they, how they were built. They just imagined, like, you know, so we've decided how long you have, but whether or not that's based in reality. Correct, yeah. They'll, they'll say, okay, well, there's a day to load in the rig, and then we'll give them a night to program, and then the show's the next day. And here's, you know, 400 fixtures, and we want it to look like the EDC show in Vegas. You can do it quick and easy because you have all the same lights. Go. <laughs> but, of course, it's not that easy. 
So what does that what does that do? What does that mean for the business? I mean, if if that becomes the you know if the business decides that's what it wants to be, what happens? Well, I think what happens is unfortunately we go backwards a little bit towards flash and trash. And what I mean is, I'm sure you remember in in the early days of of moving lights, there were a lot of television shows, and for some reason it was the Telemundo shows uh, that, that did a lot of flash and trash that the lights were moving around and it worked for them. Um, I'm not saying it was bad. Color wheel. Yeah, you know, let the color wheel spin and do these things. And and we're kind of at that point again where people are hitting the effects engines and, and watching it go. And, and you know, you got your Sharpies and they're creating these beams of light that look great moving in a circle out in the audience. And, and we're just losing some of that creativity. But I think on the flip side, the positive side of that, we're seeing a lot of inspiration in new control methods and, and getting control easier to make those things happen. I think we're going to start to see, because time is limited and it's hard to build these specific cues with with 100 Sharpies to make all different looks in the stage, not just a sine wave moving and a circle moving, that we're going to start to see some improvements in the console software to give us different functionality quicker. And again, going back to the, focusing on the creative side, not so much on that geek side that I was talking about. It's hard to imagine how much more streamlined the console stuff can get, but then again, I'm not a software designer, so it's because I mean I'm I'm quite happy with you know with 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 a lot of the way it it, it is you know software wise mm-hmm. or or construction and queuing wise. I, I, it's just it's hard to imagine how much more easy it can get. Right. Well, I have some knowledge, but I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. There are some really great ideas out there that um, some manufacturers are are planning of where they want to go. And it's just a matter of time before we get there of how things will become easier. I know I thought that the Vista timeline thing was going to be a bigger deal than it ended up being. Yeah. I think unfortunately with the Vista and the timeline, what they did is they went too far the other direction in one giant leap. So for example, when they took out all command line altogether and just said, here you go, you have to use the timeline. That was such a leap for everyone that it was, too difficult to, to imagine moving there. And I think they should have had some, kept the, the command line so you could still fall back to what you knew while you're learning their new methods. You need a, you need a middle step. Yes. Uh, so speaking of new control methods, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now that you're more or more on the corporate side uh, of the business, uh, can we talk about how you got there? Uh, yeah. So obviously we, we talked about the Olympics, we talked about crystal method. You were already working at high end at that time. How did you end up at high end? As, 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 a, as a sort of member of the staff. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was, uh, like I said earlier on, um, early in my career, I started off going to uh, Lighting Dimensions, LDI, and meeting up with these people from high end, like Tim Grievous and Richard Bellevue. And, and I really liked that company. I liked what they had. I took their first programming class. And I had told them always that I was open to getting a job with them and working with them. And Tim Grievous was running what was called the programming department, which – their primary job, Tim and, and Mitch Peebles and, and some other people early on, their primary job was to go out and program shows because at that time there weren't lots of programmers in the industry. And so the manufacturers had to have their own programming department that went out and programmed and understood how automated lighting worked and how the consoles worked. Yeah, you had to provide the whole thing. You had to provide the people and the, and the device. Correct. So I had wanted to work for high end, um, but it just wasn't working out. And then as I was saying before, I went and did – went to uh, California and was working for Towards 2000, uh, did the Oscars and, and things like that. And then Tim Grievous called me and said, hey, Brad, I know you've wanted to work for me. I've got a position for you. 
so do you want to move to Austin? And since I had moved to California to go back to school and that didn't really work the way I wanted and all, I decided, sure, let's go for it. Let's move back to Texas. Well, and, and Austin yeah. and Austin's a great invitation. Yeah, Austin is great. So I, I came back and I started in um, – actually, it was funny because I wanted to work in the programming department. And Tim said, there's a position open here for status queue support that if you come in and get in that position, I can guarantee you in six months we'll transition you into the programming department. But I can't move you into the programming department right now. So I came in actually as status queue support specialist initially – uh, knowing that in six months I was moving over to the programming department. Who were the status quo users then? Uh, a lot of concert people. It was all mostly concert because, again, they did not have a queue list at that time. So there were a lot of concerts out at the time. Um, I can't even think right now who was using them at that point. But oh, I just mean sort of like what productions, what kinds of – Right. Because that was uh, – this is all before Studio Color. So we're talking Cyberlight and Intellibeams mainly on the status queue. And then it also could do um, DMX, so it could control some other products as well. But not a whole lot, <laughs> of course. So after you transitioned into programming, uh, and, and while you're, during your time at high-end, what were sort of like the big things that you were involved in? What were the sort of the major accomplishments, and what were some challenges from, from back then? I mean, it was a really interesting time in their history. Oh, it was a great time, because I joined right as Studio Color was about to be released. So I was there for the launch of Studio Color and everything forward. And, you know, things just really took off for high-end at that point, and it was, it was definitely a great time. Uh, we had lots of great products, you know, Studio Color, Status Q was doing well at the time, Technobeam, 250s, Studio Spot, all, all that stuff. And my job as a programmer, again, was going out uh, programming shows, and at that point it was uh, Tim Grievous, Mitch Peebles, Vicky Claiborne, Ben Richard, Benoit Richard, and myself, and... There was a couple other people, but mainly it was us that were the, the core group. And we would go program shows that people would call in and say, we need you know somebody to come program whatever tour it is. And one of us would check our schedule and off we would go to go program it. And we would do that. We also would do demos in the demo room because Richard was very particular about highly queued demos in the demo room. We would do the trade show booths. We also did training, which is where Vicky really learned her chops of how to train people on uh, consoles. So we, we did training. Uh, and then we did what eventually the job morphed into also was what we changed the title of the job. It became sales support services. So then we also started supporting the sales. So if the sales guys need to go do a demo, we would go out and do a demo or a shootout with, with them uh, against other manufacturers' products and kind of really be the experts on the lights and on the desks for the sales guy to help them in their endeavors of selling the products. Can't stress that enough, how important that is. Yeah. You know, if you want to sell these products supposed to professionals, you need other professionals to show them what they can do. They don't want to hear a sales guy tell them about it. Exactly. And that's always been key and, and really a lot of fun to do that. But uh, it's always been key for success for any of these manufacturers is to have experts of, with the products go with the sales guys. So I, I was doing all that, and then along came that, was also working alongside with uh, the engineering team and with Richard Bellevue and Bobby Hale, working alongside with them, um, testing products, making suggestions to products, and start actually interfacing directly with engineering on those products that eventually led to more of a product manager type position, but that was later on. You left and came back, right? Yeah, I, I left. Um, before we talk about when I left, I'll say another good thing that was really great was through that time with high end, the, the first time, starting in 96, 
you know, lots of things came and, and were really exciting. All those fixtures I mentioned before. And then we got into, uh, we started the beginnings of hog three, which were exciting at the beginning. I mean, it went crazy after it, it wasn't so exciting, but, um, it was exciting when that was, you know, coming out. And then the other really exciting time was catalyst. You know, we, we launched catalyst and I was heavily involved in working with Richard Bleasdale on that. You know, I, still have this great piece of paper that I sat with him at breakfast one morning at LDI. I think it was on Wednesday before the show opened on Friday. And we defined the, the DMX layout of Catalyst at breakfast. And so I have my notes that I took at that breakfast of how we decided we'd lay out, you know, if you have X position, then Y position, file, folder, all that. We, we came up with it all. And, and I still see that in use. That same basic layout is in all the media servers today. And so it's really cool to look back and be like, Wow, that came from that breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was exciting to get to do all that. Um, but my one question: yeah. uh, the 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 first media server I uh, inter- interacted with was Axon, which is a sort of mm-hmm. the child of Catalyst, right? Yes, you could call it that. Sure. <laughs> Did Catalyst have the virtual studio sort of functionality originally, or was that added later? What do you mean by virtual studio? Well, you know, where like a lot of the ones other than Axon and Mbox for a long time had, all you had was the rectangle of video, but that on Axon, you could wrap video to objects and then you could move those objects around in space. Yeah, it didn't have that originally. Okay, just wondering. Actually, what Catalyst was, was born out of, um, and here, here's an interesting side story. It was born out of a, a program that Richard Bleasdale did before called Sam SC which was a show control system that he had developed and was used on many shows on the West End and on Broadway and touring shows all over. And Sam SC was this show control system that allowed you to build a queue list and trigger multiple controllers. I see. And in fact, originally that was used f- to tie in with status queue when status queue didn't have a queue list is you would build a queue list in Sam SC and use that to trigger the, the status queue in a queue list style and also, we did that on shows where we'd still be triggering some things, like if people had emulators that, that were running on their own controller, you could send other signals out to that. It was kind of like a total universal show control computer. And so we took, initially, we took the concept of that and put that into status queue as a queue list. And that was part of what I was involved with um, early early in my time at high end, was helping them put the queue list into status queue. I see. Um, which we modeled after the CMSC list. So then when it came time to do Catalyst, we worked with Richard Bleasdale, who already had this system, and CMSC could trigger all these different video elements and do these things. So he was already kind of there. He just needed more control and more ideas. And so that's where we went in with him and, and some other people involved and created what became Catalyst. Okay. And and during during that whole time there, the first section of my time with high end, you know, it, it changed a lot. We we had a lot of that they became more corporate because they sold a lot of it off to venture capitalists. Bob Shockrell, who was in charge of sales, ended up leaving at one point. Richard Bellevue left and came back. You know, there, there were all kinds of changes that happened, but it, it started off, it was like really this really fun campus place to work, and then it got all this little stricter things going on with it as it became more corporate and more trying to make money than just make great lighting. But we still managed to do quite a lot throughout all that. And how long were you there? Uh, that, that run was from 96 to about 2003. And it's funny because I went there initially wanting to be there just for about five years. 
so that I could then continue on in my programming design career as a freelancer. I never really thought I would be there as long as I was there. So I, I left in 2003. I, I was going to leave sooner. I was going to leave around 2001. But then what happened was, well, 9-11 happened, of course, and the, industry, you know, the, the markets all dropped, and it wasn't a good time to quit a full-time job <laughs> and go freelance. And, and we were right on the verge of releasing Catalyst and Whole Hawk 3, and so there were some exciting things to stay. But then when 2003 came around, I decided, well, it's time. I need to make my move and, and move on. So I left high end. I went freelance, did a lot of different freelance shows. And then I jumped on an opportunity that I didn't foresee coming, but I thought it was a great opportunity. John Broderick, who I worked with on a lot of shows, asked me to uh, go on tour with Metallica. Uh-huh. And I had never actually toured before. I had worked on a number of tours and gone out for the first two weeks or so of the tour to, to continue to make sure it's fine. But to do the full tour was an interesting idea. And at that point he had worked with the band for about 20 years and he had never uh, turned it over for any, to anybody else to run. He had worked with uh, Benoit Richard, who I mentioned earlier, some other people programming and operating with him. But because of some personal things going on with JB, he was not able to take the tour out. So he decided that it would, require two people to replace him so it was myself and butch allen and so we went out and did that tour and i was on it for about a year and a half as well as doing some other freelance things around that time okay and then sticking with the high-end thing um i was doing actually one of those big festival shows not with uh metallica but just doing an electronic festival in florida and my phone rang and it was richard bellevue and he said to me he said i have an opportunity for you and I think you need to be home more. You've, you're, you've been gone too much. <laughs> so he offered me a position to come uh, as director of control systems development, come back to high end. And it was a twofold thing because the, the first action there was to save the whole hog three because the whole hog three had come out. It was not the grand exciting thing that everybody hoped to be the replacement for hog two whole another story there of, of problems it had and all. Um, and they had tried to revive it and try to keep it going. There were mistakes on high-end side. There were mistakes on Flying Pig's side. There was a lot of things that went on to, to lead to that. And the MA1 had come out, and it was getting a lot of uh, market share and taking over, and they were losing the Hog 3. So he asked me to come back to help revive that in the promise that I could help build a new desk in the future. Because that's what I really wanted to do. I really wanted to build a desk. So... He said, yes, you can help build the Hog 4, but you got to fix the Hog 3 first. <laughs> I see. So they already had brought in um, – most of the Flying Pig team had left at that point, and they had brought back Robbie Bruce, who I'd worked with back on Status Q a long, long time ago. They had brought him back in to be in charge of the software team themselves, and they brought me in to kind of as the product manager uh, to organize the, the plan, write the specs, and get the, the – Hog Theory better in the market again. So I came in to do that, which was pretty daunting. <laughs> and and the first thing I did is I set up this this idea, this concept of three things to focus on: speed, reliability, and trust. Speed, first of all, the desk had to be, it couldn't be thinking and, and stopping and and you know, it had to be pretty quick and responsive to your keystrokes and, and what you're yeah. asking it to do. Reliability. It had to be reliable. It had to do what you were asking it to do. And along with that trust, 
that you had that the programmers could have trust in the desk that when they record a cue or a palette or play back a cue, that it's going to play back exactly what it's supposed to do and what they expect it to do. So when I laid down that law, speed, reliability, and trust, that was the focus. I said, no more new features, put a stop to everything. Let's get those key elements fixed first. So that's what we started from, from a software standpoint, rebuilding. Those sound like the, th- like the three main tenets of you know, everything that you need in a desk. Right. Because without those, it doesn't matter what cool features you have if, if you don't trust the desk or if it's slow to, to process the DMX to do that feature. It, it doesn't matter. You know, you've got to get those worked out first. Or even if you're just hammering on the you know on the go and back button, you know to, you know to uh, you know you know doing a color thing, and and you know the desk is missing your keystrokes, which is a problem that I had early on in Hog 3's life cycle. Yes, exactly. So so that was the key. So we stopped all new features. We um, I had them remove half implemented features. There were a lot of things that were partially implemented that were in the desk that I'm like, just take it out. If it doesn't work completely, get it out of there, because out of sight, out of mind. You know, nobody likes, like, like it used to be when you would start a show, there was this wizard that would ask you questions about your show. And then there was a grayed out screen about security because you were going to be able to have user levels and define different users and all this stuff. And it was always grayed out and you just had to hit next. And I said, well, if it's not implemented, why do I have to look at a screen telling me here's something that's not implemented? Yeah. Hide that screen, get rid of it. So we did a lot of that. And then at the same time, trying to get the, impression in the industry back we had to look at new hardware so you actually mentioned this before we had to we created first the hog ipc and that the whole goal of the hog ipc was to be a transition desk from hog 2 to hog 3 because people weren't wanting to use hog 3 at that moment in time they still wanted to use hog 2 but the hog 2s we had stopped production of them and they were hard to find, and 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 you and you were forced to. Yeah, and they were falling apart. We were forced to because of the the motherboard and all. Yeah. So we created Hog IPC, which was a true hybrid because it ran Hog Two PC, or you could reboot it to run Hog Three PC. And initially, when we first sold it, you could run Beta Hog Three PC. It wasn't even ready yet, so it was sold as a Hog Two replacement initially, knowing that it had Hog Three in it. And people could take it out on a show, run Hog 2, and then maybe they could go in the shop and be like, oh, you know, I'm going to play with this Hog 3, flip it over, look at the Hog 3 stuff, and then feel comfortable doing their show on Hog 2. Or maybe they'll take a show out and run it Hog 3, that the choice would be there for them at the shop without having to invest in this desk that they weren't sure of. Yeah. And, and that concept worked pretty well to get people into that mindset while we continued to fix the software and, and make improvements. And then as we got the software going and, and Robbie built the, the really great team, he brought in some really great uh, senior guys that were super with the, the networking layers and the deep end code, and, and they rebuilt a lot of that code. Um, then we came out with more hardware. We came out with the Roadhog and the full bore. And about that time, we really got the system working well. We had fixed the speed, reliability, and trust problems. So we started putting in new features and so I was writing all these specs for these features, and we put in all these great features. And there was a point when I would laugh because people would tell me they love their full bore, they think it's great, and the software is awesome, but they would never again look at a Hog 3. It's the same software. And I would laugh. It's the exact same software. It's just a different package, different box. One qu- I, have, I have one question I have to ask you because after my sort of initial, initial experiences with the Hog 3, I never really saw or used them again, but I used mm-hmm. full bores. 
Uh, I love the buttons above and below the screens on Hog 3. Why didn't those make it into full bore? Uh, it's a cost. Oh. We were hitting a, a, we had a target to hit for cost. I see. And that's another circuit board and buttons and, you know, you have to make decisions and, and, and we also have to make decisions of uh, differentiating. You know, we wanted things on Hog 3 to be unique to Hog 3. So that's the other reason why we had to pick and choose what features from a hardware standpoint would be common or not common. I see. So a combination of those two. So, so once all that was all up and running and going well, then we actually started working on Hog 4. And I wrote the initial spec on that with, with, along with the team. And we brought in lots of different designers and programmers and talked to people and, and worked on it in secret. And it was about four years project working on Hog 4. Wow. That was after Barco had bought the company when we really got going with, with Hog 4. And I remember I had to go over to Belgium and present it to some money guy, is the best way to put it, in, in Belgium at uh, Barco and present the case for Hog 4 to him and explain how we were going to spend all this money to develop it and how it would be at least three years before we release it. And, you know, have, As a product manager, you, you have to show the business case for new products. So going over and showing him that, and then we had to get down to the business of, of building both the hardware and the software. And unfortunately, what ended up happening was Lots of things changed through Barco and, and management and whatnot. When Hog 4 was due to be released in 2012 at LDI, I actually had left the company in June of that year because I decided it was time to move on. So it was interesting to work on a product for four years and right before it releases to leave the company. Yeah. But, you know, things happen and, and that's okay. And especially because it was kind of a triumphant release. Yeah, well, we, we did one great thing that I, I'm really happy we were able to do at Pull Off was everybody knew we were working on Hog 4, but nobody knew we were working on a whole family of products to come out at the same time. And that was always the plan, was to have this whole family of, of Hog 4 products to release at the same moment at LDI. And we kept that a secret from the sales team at high end. We kept it a secret from as many people as we could. And and I think that's a, been a big part of the success of that line, is they didn't just come out and say, here's the Hog 4 the other stuff will be in a year or two later. We said, here it all is. Yeah, absolutely. So also during all that time, I also got more into doing product management of fixtures and, and working on fixtures uh, from everything that we put out at that time from uh, IntelliSpot to DL3. I really enjoyed doing show picks and studio picks, even though unfortunately they didn't take off. It's kind of funny because the industry's come back around to those now, in a sense, that, that style of light, where it's a big round pixel with individual pixel controls on it yeah um, but i was really excited by the engine we put in there because it was a true digital light engine in the show picks and studio picks well I, I really liked i really liked show picks and i used it on a bunch of stuff but i always felt like it needed a zoom yeah well you know what's interesting is what what richard his idea on that was he put the wide lenses on that so they, i think there were 40 degree lenses so they had a really wide viewing angle because his thought was if we're putting all these graphics on them you want people at all angles of the audience to be able to see the image on the front of it. So that's why yeah. he always put them with that wide angle. Well, of course, now everybody has Zoom or they have super narrow angle, like all the Ariton uh, products, super narrow angle, which is, gives you these exciting beams and different dynamics that you don't get out of that wide angle. And, and I, I always wonder if, if Showpix had had a Zoom or it had that narrow angle, would it have been better? Would it have it was, done it was, better? It was just so hard to use it as a wash light. Right. Because you had to get it close enough that you didn't have nothing left by the time it hit the stage. Exactly. 
So, so yeah, but, but it was fun learning about product management throughout that time and learning when, once Barco purchased, learning uh, how more of a corporation works and, and their processes for product management. And uh, so, yeah, it was all a great time. And so you left in June 2012 and you moved on to Verilite. Yes. Uh, speaking of corporate, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that's a, you know, a, a company with a parent company with a parent company with a parent company. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very interesting. And, and what's interesting that I always remind myself is that, you know, Philips didn't seek out and choose to buy Verilite. It was part of a package that they yeah. got with, with Genlite. So it's interesting when you look at the other purchases, whether it's, you know, Barco or, or Claypacky or Martin, those were all sought out intentionally. But Verilite was kind of an accidental purchase, if you will. I felt for a while, like, I'm not even sure that Philips knows they own Verilite. Right. Because, you know, they were a subdivision of Genlite Controls, which was a subdivision of Genlite. Right, and, and that's the way it was for, for quite a while. But they, they definitely are more integrated now. But, but so anyway, so yeah, I went to Verilite as uh, product manager for Verilite and for Showline, which is their LED product line. Mm -hmm. And so when I got in there, the first thing was we said we needed to have a new Verilite. So that's where I started writing the specs and doing research and coming up with what became the VL4000 spot and the VL4000 beam wash. I have not used the beam wash yet, but the 4000 spot is its quite a fixture. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the, the concept of putting everything in one light was, was kind of the idea of, well, why do we have to have two different models if we can put it all in one and sell it at the same price as one of those two models? Yeah. And, and then designers don't have to decide. They can just have one fixture that they specify and use, and rental companies can have one fixture they know they can invest in and not have to have multiple fixtures of fixture types. That was the concept with that. There's so much in it. Well, one, I actually need to get this out of the way. I do kind of wish there was a way to run the lamp in a lower voltage and, you, and run it on 110. That's all I'll say. Okay. Um, because you know, sort of working in the events business, because half of my work is in the events business, and you know, it would be great to not have to think about having a 208 distro. Right. Sometimes. Well, you know, it's interesting because this is the thing when, when you work as a product manager, you learn all the could have beens and should have beens, right? Uh, there, there's so many features that could be in a light or in a desk or whatever, but because of time, because of money, because of personalities, because of whatever, there's all these different reasons that certain things do or don't happen. I'm not and, saying I'm not I'm not saying I don't understand that. <laughs> no, no, I, I know you're not saying that. But in the case of the the 110 volt, that was on the specification initially. Oh. But and and actually initially when we launched VL4000, we had two different models that then became one model. Yes. And, and but originally it was always one model, and then it became two, and then it became one, and that that's just what happened through some development things. But in bringing it back into one model. The, we had to not go with the 110-volt option to have the one power supply to drive both modes. And that, that was negated by cost and by industry reaction. When we talked to most uh, rental companies and designers and all, most people, and you're talking global as well, Yeah. the amount of people who really are going to invest in something that, that runs 110 is very small versus the global picture for a product line. And so when you weigh that in with, development time and costs and all you have to make decisions but I, but I understand where you're coming from and sure it is great to have that ability to run something at 110 and not have a distro but we had to make a, a choice there well yeah so there's a lot of stuff in the fixture um what drove the decision to include two rotating gobble wheels two animation wheels and shutters and an iris and a prism uh 
again, the, the idea was to, you know, we, we looked at the, the VL3000, the VL3500 spot and said, okay, let's take those two, combine them into one light, but then let's have some modern features that people are looking for. And so that, that gave us the shutter and the iris and gobo wheels initially. And then, of course, prisms are pretty popular this day. And animation wheels are making a comeback. You know, I see them used quite often. And particularly here, we, we knew we wanted to give you an animation wheel that could move in different directions. And then I came up with the idea of doing something that had never been done and doing the multicolored animation wheel as opposed to a multicolored gobo. That was your. That was your doing. That was awesome. We had a bunch of them on on my summer festival. So I we did Midsummer Night Swing and Lincoln Center Out of Doors at Lincoln Center Damrosh Park, and it was great to be able to do stuff. You know, we were lighting the band sometimes with them. We were lighting the psych sometimes with them, and we did so many different things with them, including using the the multicolor animation wheel. People didn't even realize that they were lighting fixtures, much less that they were the same lighting fixtures that we were using a minute ago for something else. Right. Yeah, because when we were looking at gobos, and we did a, this big study trying to figure out the gobos for the fixture, and that's always tough on fixtures. You can't please everybody. But um, in, in talking to Verilite users and other people, everyone said, you know, the, the old Verilite chiclet, it gets old real quick, the, the round circles of color. And everybody was tired of that. And, and they didn't like that it was always the same, same colors in the same place. Yeah. And so when we were also at the same time looking at what patterns we wanted to put in the, the animation wheels – I, I saw some multicolored thing and I said, you know what, what if we made a really crazy multicolored animation wheel that would give you the ability to dial in your own multicolored look to put behind a gobo or to create these new animations that nobody's ever done with this multicolor. And so what I did is uh, I went back to a friend of mine that I knew from high end days, Steve Mahaney and hired him. He used to create a lot of the, the gobos, both real and digital gobos for high end. And he's actually since semi-retired and lives up in the mountains in Arkansas, really crazy, uh, in a little cabin with no electricity and all this. And uh, I worked with him on design on doing the artwork, and he came up with that really brilliant pattern, and we, we adapted it and made some changes here and there. But I think it really came out really beautiful and gives you lots of options color-wise. Absolutely. But the, the, again, the goal with the VL4000, just like that marketing campaign that I came up with of no compromises – was to give the designer no compromise. You got one fixture, you can put every, do everything with it, as opposed to, well, should I get this one or that one, and, and what should I do? And it still has all the features that we still want, like it still has timing channels, and it still has uh, the, the Verilite color system that we want. Right, exactly. And it still has red and Congo on opposite sides of white. It's still built in all those things that we're hoping for, and all these new things. That was the plan. And then, of course, that, that was to be the spot, and then, of course, we wanted to do a beam wash type fixture so that you have a narrow beam, kind of like the 3500 wash effects, but also to be able to do wash capabilities. And we, the optics engineer they had there was able to also figure out a way to give a really tight, narrow, almost like a Sharpie type beam out of it as well. Because that was a key thing in, in the specification that I had written was I wanted to be able to do that shaft type of beam as well as do beam looks with gobos and doing uh, wash light, be a really good wash light as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And that was another case in my career where that product was done and ready and going to be released in a month. And then I left the company. 
<laughs> and you moved on to Martin. I moved on to Martin. And and, and since that was a VL4, uh, 4000 and the other one was a Hog 4, I've warned Martin that if they want to come out with a product with a 4 in it, that, that might mean I have to leave. <laughs> that seems to be my trend now. Yes. So they, they, know now, they know now not to make a Mac 4. Is that why there's no Mac 4, I was going to ask? Right. And, and I guess there won't be an M4 either for their consoles, because they'll, oh, they'll know yeah. that. <laughs> was it as an M1 and M6? Correct. Yeah, and M2, M2 Go. Oh. So what is this newest job? So uh, Martin, yeah, I'm at Martin now uh, as business development manager. And I wasn't necessarily looking to leave Verilite. I liked being there, and I really loved the people and, and the opportunities there. But... As I kind of said, you know, it's a corporation and, and Philips has kind of changed a lot of the management things there. And after my first year there, a lot of things changed. and It wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. I see. Um, and then I, this opportunity came up, as they do, to uh, talk to Martin. So talking with them, they had this position of business development manager, which was really different. You know, I, at this point, I had been doing product management for at least 15 years, been involved in designing products and developing products and marketing them and all that. And I realized that when I took the Verilite job, it was almost like doing the same job I was doing at high end. I just moved to a different company. And yeah. then I was making Verilites instead of high end fixtures and whatnot. So this was a, a different opportunity to do something completely different, where my job is to interact directly with designers and, and work with them to make sure that, A, they understand what Martin has and how Martin products work and what they can do for them, and B, find out what we can do to help the designer, developing new products for them, um, making sure they answer their questions specific to, you know, will a fixture do this or that or whatever, really just being that liaison with the designer. Okay. And it's, it's kind of funny because I think of it, um, that movie Office Space, the, the one guy when they say, what's your job? And he explains, well... I interface between the customers and the engineers because the engineers don't know how to talk to the customers. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of feels like that. It sounds like that, but it's, it's not really that. It's, 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 again, taking my knowledge as a product specialist, but applying it specifically to the designers and making sure that, that they get the Martin love and know that we're here to help them have the best show possible. Does it seem like Martin is kind of reaffirming how serious they are about this market segment by bringing you on board? Uh, yeah, totally. I think, you know, it started about two years ago when, when they hired Griff Palmer. Uh, he, he was hired to help with the, the restructuring of the U.S. sales team. And so he started doing that, getting the, a new sales team together for rental touring specifically, and has been doing real well with that plan. But they also, Martin had had for many years a couple of guys, uh, Nick and Noel Duncan and some other people, that they were there and their job was to do the business development, working with designers. And they had since moved on. So there was an opening where Martin didn't have a specialist in the U.S. who knew all the designers and, and could get in and talk to them, who's a non-salesperson, to really work with everyone. Because as we expressed earlier, it's really important to have someone who's not a salesperson who's work with designers and help them with their needs. What is a sort of typical week for you like now? Uh, a lot of it is traveling, traveling to go visit with people, whether I'm going to uh, visit them on their show site or going – back to help assist a salesperson on a demo and be there to provide assistance and, and general knowledge as a product specialist. A lot of that, a lot of just making phone calls and talking to people about what they're doing and making sure they understand what's going on with Martin. Again, it's an interaction with the designers just to keep them informed and, and find out what they're working on and, and what they need, because that's how we drive better innovation by learning from the creative people who use the products. We can make better products. 
Makes sense to me. Can you describe the current Martin product line? Yeah. So, of course, there's the Vipers. Everybody knows the Vipers, I think. Um, but there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. And, and Martin really kind of did a poor job getting the word out on the different ones. I think most people, when they, they think of a Viper, they think of just the one main Viper. The profile. The profile, right. But there's the performance that has shutters. There's uh, the wash. There's actually two different washes. There's the air effects, you know, and then there's the uh, quad ray that can attach to the air effects. So there's a lot of options with the Vipers, which is funny for me coming straight off of VL4000 where I said there's one fixture, that's all you need. And then now I'm at this company that we have six different fixtures. Yeah. (laughs) You know. But, but they are very well received. They're very widely used in the industry, and uh, they're a great light. And then, of course, they have their new ones, the, the Quantum. They have a Quantum Wash and a, a Quantum Profile. And, and those are the, the latest uh, LED innovations from Martin, along with they have an updated Aura called Aura XB. Okay. Which is a brighter Aura. It also has a different color calibration that came from the Quantum Wash. And it looks like it has a slightly sharper beam when you have it all the way zoomed in right because it shares the optics from the quantum wash as well so you can get that tighter beam almost like a hard edge to it or you can make it more like a wash depending just like around zero to five percent it's hard edge but then above that it's more like a wash what do you hear from the industry about what it is they want that's a hard one because a lot of people don't know what they want or they just want they'll tell you that they want something that they've already seen from some other company oh, I want a Sharpie with the Martin name on it, or I want a Ariton, you know, thing that spins 360 that has a panel or wh- whatever it is that they have seen, they think they want, but they want it from a different manufacturer. But then you make it and they go, oh, you just made a copy of that other light. Yeah. Um, I, I think what the industry really wants is they want innovation and creativity more than anything. Because really, at the end of the day, Designers want something that gives them something that they feel unique and can make their show different than any other show, including the last show that that designer did. So they're, they're always looking for something that either the light has lots of options in it so they can make it look different each time or something that is completely different that they've never thought of before. What sort of excites you most about what, what, what Martin is doing right now? I think, I think what's most exciting is, is they're, they're really focused on innovation. And staying, creating products that are relevant for a long time. They're not making products that are just like, oh, we'll make this, it'll be good for two years, and then we'll move on to the next one. Because there are certainly companies in our industry that are doing a lot of that. That they make a lot of little things, throw them out there, see what sticks, and then they move on and the products change quickly. Martin takes their time to, to develop something that has some really great innovation in it, and then the idea is that it should last for quite a long time, for you know at least six, eight years, maybe more. And, and with the LED world, we're seeing more and more of that, of, of innovation in the LEDs and what can be done, not just taking LEDs as illumination, but how can we adjust them? For, for example, in the quantum profile, Martin has this array of, LED, of white LEDs in the back. It's about 90 LEDs in, in a circular pattern that are focused down into the gate much in the way that you might focus a wash, each LED is focused into a unique position with a little overlap within the gate. So that's how they get a nice flat, even field of white light. I see. But they took that further, and there's a, some innovation where they said, okay, that's great, we've got a great light source, and we're using these LEDs and this really cruel lens and blah, 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 but what else can we do with it? 
Well, they discovered that with 90 LEDs, there's a couple of different drivers driving those LEDs. You can't just drive them all from one L- one driver. They said, what if we manipulate those LEDs and allow the, the programmer to manipulate them? So there's this mode that they call Animotion, where there's six or eight different preset effects that you can choose from that are basically different types of chases between those zones of LEDs that are in this source. So now, instead of just having what we would have in normal fixtures where you have a reflector and a lamp shooting through the gate of the fixture and into a gobo, imagine you could take that light source and chase it from left to right or randomly around. And, and that's what they came up with being able to do with this fixture. They're so doing a chase within the beam itself. Within the light source itself, yes. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's not like a feature, you know, I'm going to get the light just for that feature. But I, I like the idea that they said, okay, we have this engine. What else can we do with it that's never been done? And how is that going to help from a creative standpoint? And when you do that, you know, you can do it on the wall and it looks one way, or you can do it in the air and it almost looks like an animation wheel scrolling across a gobo, mm-hmm. or it can look like a movie movie flicker, like an old movie screen, uh, the, the frames going by and flickering. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of different options, and the programmer has the ability to select between them and adjust the speed. But this goes back to part of our conversation earlier. The programmer only has that if they know, A, it's in the light, and B, it's in their fixture library, and C, yeah. they know how to find it in the fixture library. So I'm finding a lot of people don't know that that's there, even, that it's even in the light. You know, and They might use the fixture and never know that there's this really cool, innovative idea that, that exists there. Yeah, and like looking at the profile, it's like if the console was designed in a way where you have to pick the name of the parameter from a pick from list, there's no animation parameter. Right. So it's called something else, and well, I don't know what that is. Yep, exactly. It might just be called effect one and then be a number, a DMX value, that you have to set effect one to value 32. Yeah. You know, and if you don't know that, you'll never find it. You might, Or you might find it on accident and think it's just another strobe. Because yeah. you had your speed channel set to full, and it's just going <laughs> flickering around. Yeah, but but that's that's what I really like about Martin is that they're focusing on a lot of innovation and creativity, um, and and even in their M series consoles, their consoles, I had looked at them before. I had to be aware of them from running, you know, being in charge of the whole hog and all that. I had to be aware of the competition, but now really diving in and learning the M series. It's a pretty mature desk. It has lots of great features in it. There are, there are some things that it's missing, and there's some key things they need to, to fix and improve, and, and they're aware of that, and they're working on that. But there's a lot of stuff that's in the desk that you might have to build macros or go out of the way or do things different, differently on other desks, but they're right there, easy to use in the M series. And again, Martin has got some really great outside-the-box ideas of where they want to go with fixtures and with controllers. Uh, for the future, and there's some really super innovations coming uh, in a couple of years that you'll see that I think is going to take us into a new paradigm and a new world of lighting control and lighting fixtures. I see. So the direction they're going is is less about building a new one of the thing we already have and more about building something that's entirely new. Correct. You know, I mean, if you look at the world around us, there's so much technology happening and so many things from, you know, self-driving cars to everything that your iPhone can do to the, the Microsoft HoloLens and, and the, the whole virtual augmented reality world. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things going on that our industry really needs to be taking advantage and moving into those types of worlds and those types of technologies. Agreed. 
and and I see that uh, what I've seen so far with Martin is they're invested in, in looking at that and, and moving those directions. So when will you have something new to see? Uh, well, there will be some new. There is at least one new product for LDI, maybe more. Um, and then a couple of things are in the works that'll be, you know, maybe a year or two out. We'll see. Okay. I'm not fully dialed in on, on where all that is. I'm actually heading over to Denmark in two weeks, so I'm going to get really in-depth with the engineering team and, and get fully integrated on everything. But I've, I've been teased quite a lot, and I know a good amount of what's coming. And okay. it's pretty exciting. Excellent. I'm, I'm excited, too. Yep. Do you have any uh, any thoughts or wisdom you want to give out for new folks who are trying to enter the business or maybe even for folks who are doing the freelance lighting design, lighting direction thing and are looking for uh, a different path? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to, to get into this. Again, one of the key things is to have the passion and, and the, the drive. That's, that's going to take you far. And you have to want to do this because it's fun. And that's the, the end of the day. You want to do this because you're having fun doing it. Um, if you want to be a programmer, don't be, don't want to be a programmer just so you can do a great show or, or, you know, I want to be on the next big, whatever tour I could run the lights for that. Just because you want to say you did that, that's not the reason to do it. You want to do it because it's a fun thing that you enjoy doing and you're passionate about doing. Um, but you know, how to get started or early in your career. We, we talked a little bit earlier about go to a lighting shop, you know, immerse yourself as much as you can in this. I, I see a lot of kids that, that, Right now, what they do is they run out and they buy an MA wing. They buy that MA wing and they start programming at home on their visualizer, free visualizer. They post to YouTube, look, I program cues to this song, to this Taylor Swift song. And that's great practice and they learned the, the features of the desk, but they really didn't learn about lighting. They didn't learn to interact with the designer. They didn't learn to, to deal with the production and all that's going on. They, they didn't necessarily learn how to interact with the, the tracks that are being played and and just all those things that go on in the real world. And too many of them want to rush into, well, I've programmed lights at my church for two years and I've programmed 100 shows on my visualizer. I'm ready to go on tour as a programmer. And it doesn't work that way. You know, um, people want someone who have, has experience and who has a great personality and who is dedicated to this as a career goal and dedicated to being the best they can be. But as far as learning, I say read the manual, talk to as many people as you can. There's so many programmers and designers that if you just ask, send them an email and say, hey, I live in Las Vegas or wherever you live, and I'd love to come sit behind you and watch you program. Can I do that? Most of us will say, sure, come on down and sit behind us, be quiet, and watch us program. I know in the case of myself and others, we'll even maybe turn around and go, hey, you know what? I'm doing this right now for these reasons. I'm making this as a chase instead of an effect because it's faster and better to do it this way. And, and you'll pick up stuff that way. And then, and then the, other, the other thing is, is um, there are other opportunities. It's, it's really great because my son, he's 18 and he just graduated high school and he's taking an opportunity. He's going to go be in an internship at PRG in Las Vegas actually under Vicki Claiborne. She oh, runs that, that internship. And so he's leaving in uh, about a week or so, moving out to Vegas, and he's going to be there fully integrated with PRG for three months where they take him through all the different elements of the shop. He'll be rolling cable for a week. He'll be building video walls for a week. He'll be doing all these different things. And he can really find his way and see what he wants to do in the business whether it's you know programming or being a crew chief or, or whatever, but he'll get fully inundated there with 
everything that PRG does out of that shop. And then it also leads, it's a paid internship, so you, they get paid. It leads to learning that professional business, how they do things. It leads to other opportunities because, again, you're in the shop. There might be, hey, we need people to come do this load-in on Saturday. You want to help? You move on to that. Um, PRG is a great resource for that. Every year at the beginning of summer, uh, upstaging is always hiring people that you go in there and you work the upstaging shop for a year or two and you're in the shop prepping shows and learning. And then from there, you can step right up into being asked to go on tour or do whatever. And then, of course, there's always school. There's all the schools out there that you can go learn um, from typical colleges to there's dedicated schools now like Full Sail and um, other lighting dedicated academies that will teach you. But again, with any, anything, whether you're learning in a shop or you're learning in school, you can't learn everything at that one source. So you've got to keep reading and learning from others. All right. <laughs> That's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, but, you know, thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I've, I've really always appreciated your uh, podcast, and I really enjoy it. I'm an avid fan. Oh, well, thank you so very, it's very much for that. it's an honor to be on here and, and to do this. <laughs> Wait, if people want to learn more about you or learn more about Martin, uh, learn, you know, perhaps contact you, what can you tell me? Uh, a couple of things. I can tell you, of course, uh, my website is bradschiller.com. That's B-R-A-D-S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R.com. It's kind of my personal freelance website. You can reach me uh, through my Harmon email address, which is brad.schiller at harmon.com. And I also have a uh, blog that I've been doing for Martin that is just kind of different information I put up there specifically about Martin products and whatnot. And it's called In the Know. You can find that at nomartinpro, which is K-N-O-W, martinpro.blogspot.com. And then finally, all my articles are on plsn.com. You can go on plsn.com and find current and past issues and read articles there as well. Okay. We'll, we'll post some links to all that stuff. And, and as I said, the book's on amazon.com, and new version's coming next year, so there'll be more uh, press on the book when that comes out too. Great. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was absolutely fabulous. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. And you know, one, one last thing I want to be sure to say, like I, I yeah. kind of touched on it, but you know, the key to me in all my business, all my career, because I never thought I was going to be in uh, manufacturing for as long as I was. Actually, I never even thought I would be, but is to just always have fun. And remember, this is what my parents taught me and what I taught my son is that the best kind of job you can get is one where it's fun and where it, it feels like you're just having a good time and it feels like the paycheck is a bonus. Like, like you could do it if you weren't getting paid. Because I've, I've been on shows where I'm programming and I'm like, oh, yeah, right. I'm getting paid for this. This is awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, the, that's a great feeling. There's no argument here. So always have fun, whatever you're doing. And remember, it's just show business. We're not saving the world here. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Go, come to you.